Amen. There's an interesting story in Canterbury Tales. I don't know if you had to read that in Brit Lit back in the day. I had to. I didn't remember it, but a commentary remembered it, so I'm passing this story along to you. Several people wanted a story to be told. And so this man in Canterbury Tales shares the following scenario. Three men go in search of death. They believe that if they can find death, they can defeat him. Death will no longer live. So while these three men are searching for death, they come across an old man who tells them that death has been placed at the base of that tree. So they go off to find the tree, and there at the base of it, they find a huge treasure of gold. There is enough gold there to fill eight bushel baskets. All of a sudden, they are no longer consumed by finding death. They are now consumed with greed. Well, they're going to leave tomorrow, and in order to have a good trip, they need some food. So one of the young men goes into the city to buy some food and drink. While he's there, he also buys some rat poison. And on the way back, he puts the rat poison in the wine with the thought that the two other men will die and all the gold will belong to him. However, the other two men, while this guy was gone, have hatched a plan as well. Let's kill the man who went to town so that we can split the gold between us and have more. So he returns, and sure enough, they kill the man and have just increased their earnings. But to celebrate their new earnings, they open the wine, give a toast to one another, and drink. They both died, all three of them died, and the old man was proven to be right. You could find death under the tree, and it was found in the form of greed. So Solomon, who writes Ecclesiastes, is warning Israel. He's warning them about this deadly peril of greed. Israel is going through a prosperous time. Solomon is ruling and reigning over Israel. It's an economic boom that is happening. The stock market is at an all-time high. People are getting wealthy. Trade is happening. But as Solomon studies his nation, he sees that all of this economic success is very empty. And not only that, the economic pursuit is also resulting in some terrible things going on in people's lives. And so near the end of his life, he is writing a book. It's a book of wisdom. It includes lots of everyday proverbs, but it also is anchored in truth, truth that needs to be applied to people's lives. And as we're going through Ecclesiastes, I don't know if you're starting to see this. We'll see it more and more as we get to the end. He's answering the question, what is the point of life? I mean, we get up every morning, we go out and do our duties, we come back at home, go to sleep, and then do it all over again. What is the point of life? What is my life all about? We'll see that as we continue our study. This morning, Solomon is warning us. He's warning us to beware of a greedy life. Beware of pursuing wealth at all costs. And instead, enjoy God's good gifts to you right now. If you're taking notes, here's just the big idea. Beware of a greedy life and instead enjoy God's good gifts to you right now. Now, if you have your Bibles open, 
let me share with you how Solomon has put this argument together. He's used a literary device called a chiastic structure. Um, what is a chiastic structure? In your minds, maybe you would remember this from some of your literature classes. In your minds, think of a V. Actually, let's flip the V upside down. It'll be a TP today, okay? A literary um, use of chiasm or this chiastic structure is to start with point one at the bottom of the V over here. And then you move to point two. And then up at the top is your main point that you're aiming to drive home. That's the middle of the passage. That's the essence. It's like, it's like the important point that he really wants you to dwell on. Okay, now he goes to the second half of the passage and he repeats point two now with other arguments or supports and then he finishes with point one. So point one and point one, point two and point two, and then the main structure. So what we're going to do is we're going to combine the point ones together. So we'll start at the beginning and we'll also look at passages at the end of his argument. Then we'll go to point two, which we'll also look at passages over here. And then we'll finish with the main point. That's where we're going with us this morning. So how does he unpack this structure? Let's go to point one. The first point is the emptiness of loving money. The emptiness of loving money. You see it here in verse eight. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So what is Solomon saying here? He's saying to his people, you have seen greed in life. Um, let me give you a very specific example. You have seen oppression of the poor. You've seen the poor taken advantage of in life by a higher official. And your hope is that that higher official will be held accountable by an even higher official. But it doesn't take place because the higher official who is overlooking this lesser official, they're greedy as well and they, they're looking out for one another. They want their pockets lined. And so here in society, you see where people are taking advantage of the poor and nobody will stand up. And what is driving that? He's, he's saying it's greed. He goes on in the next verse here with verse 10. He who loves money. By the way, I've just talked about an example. Somebody loves money so much that they're oppressing the poor and they're not being held accountable to it. There's people who love money. Now, I think Solomon is using this example about oppression of the poor for two reasons. First is this. He wants you to know where he's going. People who are oppressing others are doing it out of their love. He's setting up his argument. Why do they do this? It's because they love money. Verse 10, it says, he who loves money, and then he goes on. But he's also, he's not just giving an example for you to think about out in life. He wants you to be put in the example. He wants you to be thinking personally about yourself. Here is people who are taking advantage of others, taking their money. It's because of their love of money. Now, what about you? 
Is there a pursuit of wealth? Is there a greed here in your own life? As he unpacks this first point about loving money, Solomon gives us three truths, and the first one is found in verse 10. First truth is this. The one who loves money will not be satisfied with money. If you love money, you will never be satisfied with it. He repeats this in chapter 6, verse 7. Remember the chiasm that I'm talking about? This is the other end. Chapter 6, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. There you see that word. You're never satisfied. It's never enough. Now, just by way of example, take someone who loves a chocolate shake. They love the creamy chocolate shake going across their tongue, sliding down their throat and into their stomach. They love it. They have a craving for it. And so Friday night, they zip over to Norm's and they order a chocolate shake. Now next Friday comes. What do they want again? Does that chocolate shake from a week ago on Friday satisfy their appetite into eternal future forever and ever about chocolate shakes? No, they're given over to this. So one chocolate shake is never enough. Next Friday night, I feel the same urge. Let's go get some. If you love money, you will never be satisfied with what you have. You'll always want more and more. One won't be enough for you. Now, that's the first truth. If you get more and more, there's a second truth that he unpacks under this love of money, and that's found in verses 11 and 12, where he says this. If goods increase, or when goods increase, notice what happens. They increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Here's what he says. You're going to lose a lot of your money to other people. If you get more money, your goods are increasing. They increase who eat them you're going to lose a lot of your money to other people. So when someone pursues wealth as their goal in life, it's their controlling agent, they take in more and more things, more and more houses, more cars, more luxuries. But when you have more things, there are a number of people who end up taking slices of the pie. Well, now I have to pay more money for the houses to be kept up. Now I have to pay more for insurance agents. Now I have to pay more taxes to the cities on the properties that I own. You're going to lose more portions of the money pie that you wanted to keep for yourself. So Solomon is saying, hey, just get the picture here. If you want more, you're going to end up giving more away. There's a third truth here, and it's found in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Third truth here. If wealth is your goal and your ambition, you will be robbed of good sleep. Solomon is just taking all of this in. He, he's observing his kingdom. He's, he's watching people who are going down this road, and he's saying there are some people who they're, they're pursuing after wealth, and they're losing sleep. The person who's chased after money as his or her goal They've finally been able to accumulate some wealth now, but they go to bed at night and they can't sleep. They're stirring awake at night, wondering about an investment. If it falls apart, I'm up a creek with a debt that I don't have the means to cover. I'm restless because thoughts about a competitor are woven into my mind. This competitor might outproduce me and I might lose my whole revenue stream. 
I'm wondering how to make extra money so that I can get to the next level of comfort living. But during these midnight hours of sleeplessness, there's the laborer who goes to his job, he does his work, and then comes home and doesn't worry about his financial empire because he's not aiming to build one. He's able to sleep like a baby. Now remember the chiasm. On the other side of the pyramid, in chapter 6, verse 9, Solomon writes that it is better to live with what you have than to have a constantly roaming appetite for what you don't have. A pursuit of wealth will keep you up at night. Now let's just stand back for a second. Solomon's unpacking this proverbial wisdom about life and pursuing wealth. Is wealth wrong? To have money, is, is that wrong? No. Abraham was wealthy. Joseph and David appeared to have wealth. Job had lots of possessions. Those who supported Jesus' ministry had means of wealth. Wealth is not the problem. What Solomon is warning against is the lie that worldly wealth can bring deep, lasting satisfaction. That's the lie that he is seeing people buy into. And then with their lives, he's seeing them stay awake restlessly at night, growing ulcers because this financial empire that they're aiming to build is actually eating away at them. The greater the craving someone has for wealth, the greater the emptiness in someone's life. It's just everyday wisdom that Solomon is unpacking for us. So having made his point about the emptiness of wealth, Solomon takes it one step further and cautions us about the evil of pursuing wealth. So point number two is the evil of pursuing wealth. And we're going to see three or four evils in this section. When you see the term evil, I think the best way to understand it is in contrast to the term good. Think about Genesis 1, when God made everything, he pronounced that it was good. It was beautiful, it had order, it had structure to it, it had substance and meaning in life. Now here comes something that is contrasting God's order, something that is contrasting God's purpose. It's like fabric in creation is starting to unravel and he's saying, this is not good. So three truths here. What's the first truth? Number one, wealth can be suddenly lost. You see this in verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. The idea is he has nothing to hand down as an inheritance. A man dominated by his money, he poured over it all the time, probably thinking that someday he would have enough money to do some fun things with, and all of a sudden, that accumulating wealth is now gone. Gone overnight, and he had nothing to pass along. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller included the following paragraph about the 2008 financial crisis. He said, the acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the federal home loan mortgage corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who had lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in Bernard, um, Bernard Madoff's Ponzi scheme slit his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London. Why did these individuals end their lives? 
It was because of this grievous evil that money had become everything to them and suddenly it was lost. Their hope in life was lost. Their God was lost. And so here is just a simple reality about money. If you have this ambitious goal that I have to be wealthy someday, you need to know this. It can suddenly be taken away from you and if it's been your God, you will be devastated by it. But there's a second grievous evil about money. The second one is you will leave it behind. This is found in verses 15 and 16. Solomon writes, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? So a man spends 50 years of his life. A woman spends 50 years of her life working to get money. Think about it from 50 to 70 or so, or 20 to 70. There's 50 years. The remaining 20 years working at managing that money. It seems like for all that work of now 70 years of giving yourself over to managing this money, there should be some sort of payoff that goes on. Once I'm done working it, there should some be some sort of payout that I get to enjoy. So a few years ago, uh, probably two years ago now, actually, Chris and I took two days to plant some arborvitae trees along our fence line. And it was hard work for two days. But now I sit back and I simply enjoy the benefit. I thought to myself, what's the payoff of those two days of work? I don't have to touch those arborvitae trees anymore. Well, if I live in that house for 50 years, I worked two days for that, 50 years times 365 days, divided by two days because I invested two days, there's a 9,000% return on my time investment into those trees. That's a good return on your investment, 9,000%. Well, Solomon is saying, you work 70 years trying to manage your money. And he's looking at people in his empire. You've worked hard all of your life. Now when it's time for you to be done working, you're still working hard at managing your money. There ought to be some sort of payoff where you could just sit back and enjoy it. And Solomon says, you can't get the payoff for it when you're dead. You came into this life and you didn't have any money bags attached to your fat thighs as a baby. And when you die... None of that money is going with you to pay for like the next 70 years of your life. You get really no payoff from it. It's what Solomon says, it's an evil. It's like, it's not good. It's a tragedy. There's a third evil about money that he gives here in chapter 6, verse 1. Apart from God's grace in someone's life, money cannot be enjoyed. Here's the third evil. Apart from God's grace in someone's life, money cannot be enjoyed. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. And we've talked about that phrase, under the sun, where you're living without taking God into account. And this evil lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Now, get this picture. The person was able to get wealth, possessions, and honor, and God gives it, 
But notice the second part. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. So Solomon starts weaving God into the picture now. He's seeing people go through life just accumulating all kinds of possessions, and he's saying, God is sovereign. Whether you realize it or not, God gave you all of those things. But in order for you to be able to enjoy it, God has to give again. God has to be able to give in such a way where you can enjoy all of those possessions. That person doesn't have it. They don't have the ability to enjoy. So the material won't give them enjoyment. Only God can do that in somebody's heart. If that's not sort of fatalistic enough, Solomon goes one step further in verses three through five. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, now, children are a blessing. Children are to be enjoyed. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's goods, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or know anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. He compares a person who has accumulated all kinds of wealth to a stillborn child. So some of you may have had this personal experience with a stillborn child. My brother and his wife had a stillborn child who suffered from trisomy 13, um, a genetic kind of mutation where certain chromosomes are tripled instead of doubled and the baby is unable to live. And they knew from ultrasounds and tests previous to delivery that this baby had trisomy 13. Um, they knew that the baby would be stillborn. But think about Solomon's day. There's no technology, no radar, no sonar, whatever you call that thing, radiologists to do that stuff, no genetic testing. And so here is a mom who is going through the stages of pregnancy, the growth that is taking place. All of the expectation that they are going to hold a baby in their arms. And so this mom goes into delivery and all of the hope that she has to be able to hold this baby now is dashed. All the potential for life, all of the thoughts about what they're going to do with that children, all of a sudden in Solomon's day, here comes this baby into mom's arms who has no life. It's a stillborn baby. This really encapsulates the sadness and the tragedy. So much potential, so much expected hope. Going through that nine months of pregnancy, there's a life full of things to be enjoyed, moments and relationships for that child to grow into, and nothing now. It's a sad picture. And so Solomon gets personal here with this, and it's meant to grab us in. The individual who goes through life 
and has many children. So many opportunities for joy. So many opportunities to laugh and be humored, to enjoy the cutest things that kids say, putting them to bed, looking at that somewhat innocent body they're laying in bed. Thinking about holidays where joy should have been overflowing. There, there were birthdays to be celebrated, vacations to go on, visits to the beaches, watching these kids grow up, enjoying those moments, throwing football in the backyard, sitting at meals and laughing around the table at, at the things that are said. All of these are supposed to be part of life. But here is someone whose soul is continually starving for satisfaction in getting more money to the point that he misses it all. There's the tragedy of a stillborn child, and that stillborn child is better off than a man or woman who pursues wealth that he or she misses all of the enjoyments that God has given to him or her in life. So much of God's good life is just dwelling right around you, in the moment. Yet this guy missed it because he was consumed by money, sitting at the table, thinking about that project that brings in this kind of cash. Out in the front yard, instead of throwing the ball with the boys, consumed with this next deal that has to go through because it means income. Trying to drum up more and more clients because we have to get to that next status of living. What a sad, depressing life to have chased money all over the world and missed your children growing up, missed the conversations around the table, missed the more meaningful gifts that God had given you to enjoy because money was your idol. And so Solomon is looking at this and he's saying, there's an evil that is going on. Beware of this pursuit. Beware of the evil of pursuing wealth. Is work wrong? No, work's not wrong. God has designed us to be workers. But what Solomon is saying is there are so many good gifts in life that God has given that those who are obsessed and dominated with pursuing wealth and achieving it are missing all of these things. It's better that you would have been a stillborn child and not have any potential for any of this. It's a sad picture. Now, thankfully, Solomon doesn't stop there. He has just given us his his social assessment of everything that's going on in his kingdom. And he's saying, it doesn't have to be this way. It really doesn't have to be this way. Look what he says in verse 18. Behold, I have, I have seen to be good and fitting. What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember or he will not dwell on or be obsessed with the days of his life because God is keeping him occupied right now in the moment with joy in his heart. Let's spend a few times. We're at the top of the teepee now. This is the climax and this is what we're going to be looking at. Solomon is turning a corner here. He's giving another perspective for life. Instead of emptiness and evil, he now brings three words together. In these few verses, there's the word enjoy four times. There's the word God four times, and there's the word gifts three times. 
This is what leads us to, to point number three. Point number three is this. It is good for you to enjoy God's gifts. It is good for you to enjoy God's gifts. Now, a lot of times we might think that God wants his children to be stoic and somber and serious all the time with no joy. But think about this. God has designed you with the capacity to laugh. God has designed you with emotions, with the capacity to have goosebumps rise on, on your arms because you're enjoying something. He is a good father who wants to see his children well up with joy. Any good parent wants to see their kids walking through life with joy in their hearts, and it's no different for God. He wants to see joy in your lives. But that joy must come from him, not from the empty, evil pursuit of money. The greatest joy that we can have will never be found in any of this. He's saying it has to be found in one's relationship with him. So Solomon says it's a good thing in contrast to the evil tragedies that we've just talked about. It is a good thing and it's a fitting thing. It's an appropriate thing that you and I should enjoy God's gifts to us. Mankind should find enjoyment in his food, his drink, and his work because God has seen fit to give all of that to him. So last Sunday, Chicago Bears were playing. They're my team. And in anticipation of celebrating their victory over the Lions, me and the boys went to, we went to Meyer and grabbed Coke. Not just Coke in a can, but we grabbed them in the glass bottles. I mean, this is going to be great. So last Sunday, last Saturday night, I threw them in the fridge. Sunday, we come home. We run downstairs, and I'm hearing the boys go, yeah, yeah. I'm hearing them cheering. I, I was here a little bit later, and they're watching the game, and they're just enjoying it. So I break open those Coke bottles, and I take them downstairs, and there's the boys, myself. The girls eventually came down. There's the bears just dominating the lions. But there's my boys and my family. And here's a Coke bottle. And hey, cheers, ta-ta, another touchdown for the bears. We're just enjoying this. Every part of that was a sovereign gift from God for me to enjoy. That's what Solomon is saying. Enjoy your food that God gives. Enjoy your drink that God gives. Enjoy the toil that God, enjoy the satisfaction of applying your hand, taking it to the plow and seeing a field turned over in your work. This is a good thing for you to do. And I'm sitting there through my Ecclesiastes study, and it's not just about a Bears game, right? I mean, how shallow is that? Because they'll probably lose today, definitely next week against the Packers. I mean, that's going to be bad. But I get to be down there with the gifts that God has given to me, and those are those little, like, sprinkles of joy in our lives that as Christians we're saying, God, you are the giver of wealth, possessions, food, drink, toil, you put my boys down there so we can cheer together. He brought the girls down there so we could cheer with them as well. This is all a good moment, and it's life under the hand of God. It's a gift from God's hand in that moment. Mankind should enjoy his food, his drink, and his work. Mankind should enjoy the wealth, possessions, and power he has because God has seen fit to give those to him as well. 
But you're like, wait a second. What is Solomon going after here? I thought we were just cautioned about the pursuit of wealth, and now you're saying that money should be enjoyed. Yes, but there's a huge shift that has occurred in our thinking, in our view. Earlier, wealth, money, 20 bucks in your pocket was seen as something that was all-consuming. You had to have it. Solomon wasn't condemning wealth or money in and of itself. He was condemning the love of it, the affair with it. I have to have it in my arms. I have to have it or else I won't be satisfied. He was condemning the ultimate enjoyment. Has to be money or nothing. And here Solomon is saying, any amount of wealth that you have is actually given to you by God. It was never you who actually went out and got it. It was God who gave it to you. So whether you've got 30 bucks in your pocket to enjoy Qdoba, or you've got $300,000 in your bank account, like God sovereignly placed it there. But here's the thing. You can only really appreciate and enjoy it if you see it as God sovereignly placing it there, and it's meant to be used under his umbrella, his parameters of enjoyment. Now go back to the chocolate shake. What would ruin someone's enjoyment of a chocolate shake on a Friday night? Think about this. You're at Norm's, chocolate shake served up, here you go, it's in their hand. What would ruin the person's enjoyment who just received this chocolate shake? Here's what would ruin it. If they got the idea in their head that the only way to be happy is to have more chocolate shakes at that moment. No, everybody has one chocolate shake, but I have to have more than that. In fact, I've got a contract coming in tomorrow where 40 chocolate shakes are going to be delivered into my freezer, and until they get there, I can't really feel like I'm enjoying this. And by the way, I'm going out for more deals. I want to have 80 chocolate shakes in my freezer. And you're sitting there, and you're like, dude, it's just enjoy this right now. Like, Quit thinking about how many chocolate shakes you're going to accrue for yourself. Just enjoy this moment right now. It's smooth, it's silky, it's tasty. We're gonna have a good time right now. And they're like dominated, obsessed with what they don't have and what they want. No, one is enough. Whatever you have, it's enough. Just enjoy this right now. See it as a gift from God. And that's Solomon's point. What you have right now, whether it's much or little, you can have joy in your heart because God gives it to you. Now, step back and think about this from a global perspective. You know that we live in the most wealthy nation in the world. You know that most of us are far more wealthy than the rest of the world. So, you know, we've taken missions trips, and some of you have been to India, some of you have been down to Haiti, some of the poorer countries, or there's pockets of extreme poverty. But in those pockets of extreme poverty, there are Christians. If we think that the only way for that person to have joy in life is to have what we have, materialistically speaking, we have missed the goodness of God. We've totally missed it. Like, it doesn't mean we shouldn't give so that they can have, but now our benchmark for enjoyment are these threads. Our benchmark for enjoyment is our vehicle. 
our benchmark for enjoyment is all of our chocolate shakes that we have in the freezer. And the truth of it is, no, 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 no. God has given each of his children sustenance in life, satisfaction in life with turning over that field, relationships in life to enjoy. God is giving gifts to each of his children to enjoy. So no matter if you've got these threads or if you don't have these threads and you're somewhere in poverty in Haiti, if you're a Christian, you can have enjoyment because of who God is. Like, that's where Solomon is saying, like, get your mind off the worldly perspective of enjoyment and get your mind on God is a good giver who loves his children, and it's not about greenbacks. It's about everything else in life, and actually the greenbacks are oftentimes distracting us from the many good things that God has given. So many people just chasing the greenback and missing God's gift around the table right now. And parents wake up someday and they're like, what just happened? I never knew my kids. Not big on quoting secular songs, but I don't have the lyrics in front of me. Some of you have heard that song, When the Cat's in the Cradle, and the tragedy that's there. And the little boy comes to the dad, hey, dad, can we do these things now? No, not right now. No, not right now. No, not right now. Life goes on. The dad turns around and says, boy, can we do this now? And the son says, no, can't do it anymore. Missed it all. How do you go from the kind of thinking of being driven by money to the kind of thinking that enjoys life no matter how much money you have or don't have? How do you, how do you make that shift? Two thoughts here. Number one is this. You have to adjust your standards of wealth to God's standards of wealth. You have to adjust your standards of wealth to God's standards of wealth. I think about this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What is the Apostle Paul talking about here? He's using terms of, economy here, right? Poor and rich. Here's Jesus, the Son of God, who had everything he needed in heaven. We could say he was rich. Yet for your sake, he became poor. And so Jesus takes on flesh, leaves heaven. He's born as a human now. And he has left all of the wealth of heaven. And Jesus walks through life as a human. And he does this so that you might become rich. So how does that happen? Jesus lives as a perfect human being, the God-man, God in the flesh here. And he lives this perfect, sinless life. All of us have sinned, and all of us deserve judgment for our sin from God. But Jesus was the one who lived the perfect, obedient life. He was the only one who could stand before God and not deserve judgment. We need his life. Jesus came and lived this life here, and then he goes to the cross where he willfully substitutes himself in our place, and instead of us receiving the judgment for our sin, Jesus goes to the cross and dies, and the judgment for our sin is poured out on Christ. 
And Jesus says, I'm willing to do that, and I'm willing to give you my life as a gift, my life of perfect obedience as a gift to you. And so by faith, we come to Jesus as our Savior, recognizing that we've sinned, we deserve judgment against God, but Jesus took that judgment, and by faith, we receive him as our Savior. We have the gift of Jesus' perfect life applied to our account now. Here's Jesus' life. So that the Father sees us through the gift of Jesus. We're not perfect, but we have the gift of Jesus' perfection on our life. So that we might become rich. Now we have all of the benefits of salvation. Now we have all of the goodness of all the riches in heaven that God is going to lead us to. We have a relationship with God. So what is wealth now? We're adjusting our standards so that the Christian in Haiti and the squalors in India were all on the same page. What is wealth? You are wealthy and you are rich when you trust in Jesus as your Savior because now you have the most important treasure you could ever find. You have the forgiveness of all of your sins, all of them, and a relationship with God forever and ever. God is going to bring you into eternal life with him forever and ever. That's true wealth, to have a relationship with God where it's all forgiven. That's wealth. We have to adjust our standards. So all of you who are saved, who have trusted Jesus, you are truly wealthy. And if you haven't, you are terribly poor. Thought number two. Adjust your standards of security being found in money to security being found in God. Adjust your standards of security being found in money to security being found in God. I don't think I wrote this or put this up on the screen. Hebrews 13, 5, I did. Keep your life free from the love of money. We don't want to be where Solomon was talking about in the first two points. So keep your life free from the love of money. How do I do that? Be content with what you have. Here's the reason. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. By trusting in Jesus as your Savior, you and I are brought into this great reality that God is always with us. We think that money can buy security. We think that if we just get enough wealth, we won't outlive our Money. We want our money to outlive us, right? And that brings security to us. Or maybe we can fix things if, if a surprise happens in our life. Here's security. I've got my, you know, six-month fund here. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, be careful. Be careful. Might be good to be steward. We're not saying be reckless with your money. But keep your life free from it and know this, that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. So enjoyment in life is really an indicator of how you view God. Is he a good father who gives his children what they need? Has he given us what we need for enjoyment and security? And the answer is yes. And how do we know that? We look to the cross. There's Jesus. He's given us everything we need. Or are you pursuing the dream of enjoyment because you can't find enjoyment in what God has given you? Like, is there this ongoing craving in your heart? And you're like, well, I guess that craving's only going to be satisfied if I get enough greenbacks. And here's the reality. That craving needs to be redirected, and it can only be met and fulfilled in a relationship with God. But if you are trusting God, you're able to enjoy life. And so this is the call. Enjoy life. Enjoy all the different components of life. 
as a gift from God. It's not about how much money I have. I'm just thankful that God has given me money. It's not about how few possessions I have. When I have a relationship with God, my focus shifts to being thankful for what I do have, not just being envious of what I don't have. So think about it this way. If my work is a cashier at the local gas station, I can enjoy it because it's good. And if your work is that you're a specialist doctor, enjoy it because it's good. And when a doctor and cashier come together as Christians, they can because they have the wealth and rich of Jesus Christ in their life. There's not this economic difference between them. They have the same wealth. They can share stories together. They can talk about life together because they are one in Christ. They have been made wealthy in Christ. They can be thankful for what they have. Life as a Christian now is not about the pursuit of what I don't have. For us, what we're seeing in this passage this morning, life as a Christian can be about enjoying now what God as a good heavenly father has given to us. He has given each one of us the capacity to enjoy things. I wanna exhort and encourage you to step back and see these things that God has given to you and to enjoy